Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, March 10th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And today, a giant Trump supporter and attendee of the CPAC political conference went online, website called Twitter, to name various conservative celebrities, I guess we could say, who might have been exposed to the coronavirus. The Trump supporter and radio host Raheem Kassan took to Twitter to report, I've been flu sick, unwell for the past week, and now I am finding out there are people I was in direct contact with who were in direct contact with the infected person. He's talking about the person from CPAC. He then listed Ted Cruz, who has put himself in isolation already. And he also said possibly Mike Pence had met with the infected person. He then listed Rep. Louis Gohmert, Rona McDaniel, Michael Knowles, Kay James, Kellyanne Conway, Betsy DeVos, Rep. Matt Gates, and, and this is the biggest blow in all, Diamond just diamond? No, diamond and silk. But why would a Trump supporter out these conservatives, many of whom have been towing the party line that, oh, this coronavirus ain't much, just like Kellyanne Conway did in painting the fight against the virus in overly optimistic terms? It is being contained. The answer is this, why, why this guy, Raheem Kassan, is saying this. He belongs to a specific niche of conservatism. He's operating not in the Rush Limbaugh, it's all liberal hoax wing. He's actually co-hosting a show with Steve Bannon, who is actually in the This Is a Deadly Scourge from China. And we have been warning you all along about the dangers of China, free trade, porous borders, and I, as a listener, detect a little a whiff of unclean foreigners in there. So how does it fit in with the absolute reality that Trump is downplaying the virus to some degree? Okay, let's play some clips from the Bannon War Room. That is the name of the podcast, co-hosted by Raheem Kassan. Here is Steve Bannon interviewing uh, Brian Kennedy of the Claremont Institute. Brian, here's a question for you. Do you see, because a lot of conservative media is saying, hey, this is all Democrats, they're weaponizing this, and they're obviously trying to nitpick everything President Trump's going to do. They're not talking about when he shut the traffic down from China, they're not talking about put in. They are trying to go after and nitpick everything. But do you see this as just a hoax and something that Democrats are, are kicking up as a campaign issue? Or in your judgment and wisdom, do you see this as a real problem? No, I think this is a real problem. And I think the president think this is a real problem. He's done a brilliant job in doing those things you just described, but now he needs to make sure that his administration matches what the president's vision is of what needs to get done with actual competence, right? I mean, are, are we actually shutting down the border adequately? We have some of these things in place, but we also have a, a system that looks the other way quite often when it comes to people crossing our borders. They establish as a baseline that Trump is brilliant, Trump's making all the right choices, but they nudge him along to do the right thing, which they trust he will do, you know, because he's brilliant, 
And they also acknowledge that the media will never, ever give him credit. It's an interesting insight into just how Bannon operated by flattering and working Trump while he was literally talking into his ear. That said, right now, there are actually large chunks of good advice being conveyed by Steve Bannon to millions, no, to thousands of listeners. Here he is with guest Dr. Joe Norman. So, Joe, let's. I want to go back. If you had the president's ear this afternoon in the Oval and he said, hey, here's the two or three things I think you really need to do to get ahead of this. What, now that the whole fear of the stock market, I think there was some fear or whatever, some concern that, hey, if any action was taken was going to affect the stock market, that's out the window. The financial markets are now responding right. to the lack of direct hard action. Um, if you were there, could tell him two or three actions, what would they be? Yes. Cancel all large public gatherings nationwide. Large no being, large, large, being large, large being defined as what? Let's say over a thousand. It's probably, it's probably prudent to do much less, 500 or so, or, or even less is prudent. But in terms of uh, realistic policy, definitely a thousand or more it makes no sense. The statistics just, you, you start to guarantee that a sick person will be present. And then you're guaranteeing the spread of that um, via that sick person. So say a thousand or more, cancel them all. There's no reason to be doing them right now. Um, in where we have known uh, outbreaks, like in Seattle, we should be doing basically lockdowns like in Italy. Um, people should stop move, moving freeze in place. If we need to pay people to stay home, we should do that. Um, they're, they're, even healthy people or people that seem like they're healthy, if we can reduce their mobility, every person is a potential vector of the virus. So the more you can just freeze people in place, freeze people at home, then the, the, the quicker this thing will, uh, you know, the r not will go down below one. That's actually sound analysis from the Steve Bannon war room. Huh, strange times. On the show today, I spiel about the importance of narratives to human cognition and how that affects our thoughts on viruses, political campaigns, and bank robbery flicks. But first, he was the campaign manager of Barack Obama, who not only decided on the strategy, but also instituted the action plan to make the strategy a reality. Now, David Plouffe wants to take those methods and spread them like a virus, no, like a grin. To all of us, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, author David Plouffe, is here to talk tactics and politics. So politics is one of those endeavors where the losers are always painted as idiots and the winners as geniuses. And that's not true. It's just not true. But I say it advisedly because my next guest, David Plouffe, he might be a genius and he was a winner. I mean, he was the guy who managed the Barack Obama campaign. Do you remember in 2008 when Barack Obama, black man, won Indiana and a bunch of other states? So he did an amazing job and many Democrats owe him a debt of thanks. And now he's trying to, I don't know, spend down that goodwill a little bit. He has a great podcast out and he also is out with a citizen's guide to beating Donald Trump. David Plouffe, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So that 2008, obviously... America is different from then, what it was then. The circumstances were different from what it was then. But were there big mistakes on the 2008 campaign? I'm not saying it's perfect, but what was a potential big mistake? I can't think of one. Yeah, it's funny. Here's a little bit of color. So in 2016, the Democratic Convention was in Philadelphia, you probably remember. And Barack Obama spoke the night before Hillary, right? So Wednesday. And I was actually in the convention doing some political stuff. I was working for Uber at the time. And he asked me to come over and hang out in the locker room before his speech. 
And, you know, we were just reflecting on the journey. Like, it's hard to believe we won in eight years. And we kind of took it to all the mistakes we made through the years, honestly. Uh, so we didn't get too high on ourselves. Um, so there was a lot. I mean, we misplayed the Ohio and Texas primaries back in 2008. We made a bunch of mistakes uh, leading into the New Hampshire primary. I actually yes, feel like yes. in the general— are, you, got, you were a little too confident, and then Hillary had her moment yeah. and come back, and there was drama. And if people think that it was a foregone conclusion after then, it wasn't. It was close. That's true. That's true. I'm thinking about the general, though. The general, I think we really did a good job. And partially like McCain's (laughs) campaign and uh, Steve Schmidt's a really good friend of mine right now. But they were not as tough as Hillary was. And the the Hillary of 2008 was a much stronger figure uh, than 16. I mean, we really – it was slaying a really tough opponent. I will tell you about that New Hampshire. It is very relevant to today and what just happened in our primary. So Hillary led in New Hampshire by big numbers, very strongly – strong favorable numbers. We take a lead. And then at the very end, we didn't do a great job. Clearly, he had a bad debate moment. She had her emotional moment. But And I think voters in New Hampshire are like, we're really just going to like gift the nomination of this guy. So it's a whole bunch of things, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she wins. But you got to remember, what she got back was votes she had most of the campaign. So with Biden, we you know in 2019, he was leading national polls, comfortably in the 30s. Remember, I think a lot of people were surprised. It's like his lead is stable. It's holding on. Then he stumbles in, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, and some of those voters left him, but they came back. And so it's a really important lesson in politics that it's never fun to lose support, but it's always easier to get support back you once had than never had at all. Yeah, that's from retail too, by the way. Brands will tell you that as well. Do you think the current primary has sufficiently put the candidates through their paces in a way that will not just test them, they've been tested, but test them in the same manner that they'll get in the general, the intensity and the direction of the charges? I do not. And so that's why um, I have zero anxiety about the March 15th debate. Um, I hope it is spirited. I hope it is tough. I think I hope parts of it are unfair, <laughs> you know, because they got to get yeah. in fighting shape, honestly. So I I do not. I do know, you know, that primary with Hillary and her campaign, uh, this is going to sound arrogant, but like when we came out of it and moved to the general election, honestly, every day was easier for us because, you know, they were just stronger than the McCain folks. And it really got us into fighting shape. Yeah. And I was a little dreading the March 15th <laughs> debate because I'm backing Biden more than Bernie Sanders just because my theories of politics is helping the most people as much as you can and the people who need the help the most as much as you can, especially. And I think Biden does that more than Bernie. That said, what I think Trump is going to do is just hammer Bernie on the issue of cognitive decline, perceived and, you know, reality. And if I were a moderator in that debate, I just come out and ask him a direct question about, do you see yourself slipping mentally? Is this because of, I don't know, a stutter coming back? Or is this just because when you get to be in your late 70s, you do slip a little bit? What I do think is if he can answer that well, it will be very helpful to him in the future. I agree with that. So he should welcome that because I doubt Bernie will bring that directly. I hope a moderator does. And I think there's lots of places to go with that, right? Which is, hey, I miss. I might misplace a word or two, but Donald Trump's like misplaced the Constitution. 
you know, I may uh, stumble occasionally on a sentence. Uh, you know, he's stumbling the response to the coronavirus. Like, yeah. bring it on, Donald, honestly. But I hope he comes out raring. So, yeah, listen, if you're supporting Biden and you'd like the primary to accelerate to its end and you don't want Biden to be roughed up, it could be painful watching the debate. But I just know that it's kind of important medicine to take, I think, to help him get ready for, you know, whatever you think about Trump. He's not going down without a historically ferocious fight, and he will throw everything below the belt. So I'm not sure uh, you seem to be, but I'm not sure people properly understand uh, how brutal this is going to be. And when he won in 16, you know, he did it with kind of a ramshackle campaign operation. Yeah. You know, they are locked and loaded right now um, in a way that, you know, it's kind of why I wrote the book, which is if, if millions of Americans don't kind of pick up their phones and put on their walking shoes and, and get to work, you know, we're, we're going to lose. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you... You, you had Anita Dunn as a guest on the podcast. Do you talk to literally Joe Biden ever during this process? <laughs> well, I'm not going to get into who I talk to and who I don't. I, I've actually talked to a fair, you know, pretty much all the campaigns and, and candidates through the process, just not, not to give advice against each other, but, you know, particularly as they're getting their campaign set up big because, you know, you're, you're basically building a startup from scratch and what lessons can you learn from, from prior campaigns? But, you know, it is a remarkable journey. And is that like professional courtesy or because you wouldn't mind if any of these candidates, uh, if Bernie won? that you'd be fine with that, so you're happy to help. I am not in the camp that says Bernie Sanders could not win the presidency. Mm -hmm. I happen to believe that I would worry that he wouldn't put as many states in play as Biden electorally, things like Arizona and North Carolina. You know, my view was, uh, hey, whoever earns this nomination, everybody's got to strap up for them. Now, that doesn't happen automatically. If Biden wins the nomination, there's going to be a lot of younger Bernie supporters, understandably, who feel that that was the wrong answer. And we better respect that and, and listen to them and say, how can you get involved in this campaign? Conversely, uh, you know, if Bernie to win, clearly he'd have, I think, a lot of work to do with the African-American community, among others. But, but I think at the end of the day, the threat of Trump is so pronounced that, you know, if your favorite candidate didn't come through, I hope you think about that. Because, you know, it's not like, well, Trump wins and then we'll get back right at it in four years and get somebody more to your liking. I'm, I mean, we may not survive the next four years. Our, you know, the, the planet may be basically in an exact, you know, we may be basically uh, too late at that point. Think about what it'll do on health care. The deficit's blowing up and he's only going to make it worse. The thing that I'm reflecting on a lot now is if Trump wins, if he's ratified, and he gets a second term. There'll be a generation of male politicians, conservative politicians here and around the world, quite frankly, who believe that this is the way to succeed and win. Yeah. Trumpism will not die if we beat Donald Trump. Yeah. But I think we can we can limit its damage in future years. But if he wins, that's the playbook. Ugh. And um, I, to add to that list, the, his first term, he had the adults around him who did what they could. And Jim Mattis is a good man. And I'm not saying Mark Esper is not, but he doesn't have doesn't have all the resources that Mattis did. And, you know, the na the new director of national intelligence compared to the original director of national intelligence is like whoever it will be, if it's Grinnell, if it's Ratcliffe, just to fall off the cliff in terms of quality. He'll just be surrounding himself with yes men, mostly men, and from the third or fourth string of a bench that didn't want to serve with him in the first place. Yeah, well, this has always been Trump's dream. I mean, this is why, you know, he couldn't have been clear. He wanted an attorney general that was basically the family attorney, you know? Mm -hmm. He's got that in bar. I think the second term will be filled with sycophants, grifters, 
and no one will push back on him and people who really think the law or norms do not apply to them. That's what Trump wants. And he's moving in that direction quickly, even pre-election, even before he's judged by the voters. Um, so it is um, – it is, and listen, I've worked in the White House. It is the most powerful office the world has ever known. And he has not executed that power fully. But if he has a second term where he's not bound by having to ask the voters for a second term uh, and he's been in office a little bit longer, yeah. he's going to understand how to uh, use all those levers in very, very dangerous ways. Right. And he's beaten impeachment once. Look, we could go on and on about Trump, but I did ask you about Joe Biden. And if you talk to him and you demurred in the answer, but that's fine, because I want to ask you this. You are, you know Joe Biden well from your time in the White House. And my listeners should know you go back to Delaware politics. That's where you got, <laughs> a, got your start. So right. you know this man very, very well. You know how he thinks and how he talks and how he communicates and who he is. Have you perceived, though, that uh, his verbal stumbles uh, have been of a different order or magnitude? Have they been just, uh, we get a little old and we don't have the words, or do you sense something that's a little different from him than when you knew him all those years? So I'll say, and this has been true about Biden, you know, even going back to, you know, the 1970s, okay? I mean, the gaffes, the stumbles, they don't bother me. Like, I think one of Trump's strengths as a, as a politician is, you know, he doesn't uh, operate off Washington talking points. So I think Biden and his campaign should not worry about that. What, the only place where I think the performance does give me concern is the debates just because – so in 2007 and eight, where Biden ran and, and got out after Iowa, that was a multi-candidate field. He was actually a very strong debater, noticeably yeah. so. Yeah, people forget he people forget by that. many polls he won most of those yeah, debates that, that was, he was in. So that was like the best part of that campaign for him. And then yeah. you know I helped prep him uh, for the vice presidential debates, and you know the Palin debate was no joke. I mean that was his you know high profile and how do you deal with her? He did really well. Yeah. And then you yeah. know the twelve debate Ryan is a skilled debater, and you know we had our terrible first debate with Romney. We really needed Biden to pick us off the mat, and he did. So so that's what's interesting. We're, so you know politics is like a decathlon. On, right? Uh, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. everybody's great at everything. But if you think about the, the political events that are part of a campaign, debating was always one of his strongest events. And so that, you know, and that's why, again, for March 15th, I think it's really important for him. I'm not suggesting he needs to be Abraham Lincoln on the 15th. But, you know, I believe- <laughs> But he, he could be Joe Biden of 1988. That or be bad. 2012 would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He represents, I think, I think he's a restoration candidate, and I don't know that we've ever had that, and I don't know how that plays. The challenger almost always wins based on, I'm something new, time for a change. He's the challenger, but he's also, I want to go back and restore as the restoration candidate. Do you agree with my assessment? And what challenges does that bring? It does. I actually think there's strength to it. Certainly in our primary, there's strength to it. I, I thought his speech in South Carolina captured that well, right, which is, we don't have to be like them, and we don't have to be this way as a country as Washington, D.C. I actually think people yearn for that. That's positive change. Where, one thing where I do think he, he has to fill in more details, and this is in speeches and debates, is, you know, let's say you get a question. Pick the issue, health care, education, taxes. You know, he's got a long record and a record he's proud of, so he should say, listen, l let me tell you, I, I accomplished this or I did that, but that should be like 10 seconds. Yeah. And then it should be, let me tell you why it's important, the values who I'm fighting for the character, and then say, let me, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I think that last part, this is one of Sanders' strength, by the way. All the folks on the stage who've been in Washington a long time, sometimes it was hard to determine whether they were running for re-election for their current office or making a case to be president. Bernie always makes a case. 
You know, now you could cynically say it's because, you know, he didn't get much done in Washington, but it's very effective. And I think I'd like to see Joe Biden do more of that in the next few weeks, but certainly in the general election if he's the nominee, where it, it is. So, so yes, it's going to be a return to normalcy in terms of like, hey, I'm not going to be bothering you every day. Like a lot of voters out there saying like, this guy's in my face all the time, Trump. You know, just basically, can we calm down, settle down? I am going to be someone of high character and ethics. So that's good. That's a good return. But in terms of like, what are you going to do on wages and what are you going to do on health care? He's got to be more forward leaning in my view. Because he he relies too much on I did this or I'm the only one, and I'd like to see him put a little bit more emphasis on on what he's going to do going forward. Yes, this was great. David Pluff, campaign manager for Barack Obama, is out with a new book now called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. And listen to the Campaign HQ, which is his podcast. He has you can't turn down an interview, so he has everyone <laughs> running every campaign. It's kind of amazing. Thank if you're you, a political nerd, it is for yeah. you. Thank you for calling that out, though. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. I'm going to tell you a story today. It will turn out being a story. And I'm going to start with Super Tuper Tuesday, which is the voting in Michigan, Mississippi, Idaho, North Dakota, Washington, and a mysterious international cabal known as the Democrats Abroad. Oh, Democrats, why are you abroad? So today we could be done with the Democrats are making a mistake argument. This is the argument proffered by Bernie Sanders supporters saying you got to nominate exciting, exciting Bernie Sanders, not non-exciting Joe Biden. On the show on Friday, I chronicled all these cases of the Bernie supporters making the case for their man as the only one who could drive voters to the polls. Even if all these voters who have been driven to the polls in the primaries are going to the polls specifically to oppose Bernie Sanders. Maybe to vote for Joe Biden, but it seems like a lot of them is to oppose Bernie Sanders. I guess their headline would be Democrats swarming to the polls in opposition of the guy who can get the Democrats to the polls. Now you think the actual evidence of only Bernie is the guy exciting enough to get the voters to the polls, do you think the evidence on Super Tuesday, which totally contradicted that idea, would have stopped the talking point to some extent, would have stopped some of the more excited Bernie people from saying Bernie's the more exciting candidate. That did not happen. This was CNN two days ago. Bernie backer Alexandra Rojas, executive director of the Justice Democrats. Because you're going with the safe choice. I think Joe Biden right now represents what a lot of people, <laughs> we in the media, see as the safe alternative to Donald do Trump. And I think that we, it's important that right now we draw the strongest possible contrast. And going into places like <laughs> Michigan, this feels very reminiscent of 2016, exactly. where there's a lot of people that voted for Obama twice, but stayed at home in 2016. Those are young people, just, those are union sorry, households, people Michigan. of color. And I think that Bernie Sanders makes a strong case. Well, I think How much actual evidence to the contrary do you need to push you off this talking point? couple things. Pepsi Clear, not the choice of a new generation. Kickboxing, not the sport of the future. Bernie Sanders, not the magic Democratic turnout machine. He's just not. We had market testing. It didn't happen. Your theory of someone exciting to turn out the base might prove to be true, but it might be Joe Biden. It's not Bernie. In fact, if we replay that clip I just played for you in the future, I would say the most striking and important and pertinent part won't be Alexandra Rojas. It might just be the coughing in the background. Because of the coronavirus, both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have canceled upcoming Cleveland rallies. 
which is a shame. I'd like to see both guys say hello, Cleveland. This will likely freeze an already static Democratic primary in amber. I hope the virus and the outbreak isn't blamed for handing the nomination to Biden, but who knows what realities deep partisans will glom onto. After tonight, let us hope the by now discredited picture of Bernie Sanders turnout machine goes away. Of course, old, comforting, discredited ideas don't just go away. Let's look at the reporting on the stock market. For days, it went down. Late February, down 1,000, down 100, down 1,000, down 1,300 every day, down, and we knew why. Stock markets around the world are plunging over growing coronavirus fears. Until March 2nd, a reverse. We've got this 1,200-point rally, truly incredible, ended on our highs. But are you a buyer? Explanations abounded. Maybe corona was overhyped. Maybe it was just buying on a dip. Or maybe, this is a good one, maybe it was Amy Klobuchar. This kind of action I don't really like. There was a lot of things to like for the market to go up. There was a lot of fuel for the fire. You know, you had coordinated G7. You have the expectation of a big Fed move. I think even uh, Klobuchar dropping out of the race and throwing her support toward Biden helped the market. Biden bounce? The Biden bounce, absolutely. To the extent that Bernie is weakened, I think that's better for the market. Okay. But now, since March 4th, the markets have gone down and down and down with this market close yesterday. With breaking news, Wall Street is about to close any minute now. The Dow collapsing around 1,900 points today. Its worst single-day loss ever. As an oil corona got the blame there from Jake Tapper, most everyone else too. Today, the corona picture has not gotten any better. It's in fact gotten worse. But the markets have responded this way, CNBC reported. Stocks rebounded with a roar. Today's gains made up for roughly half of Wall Street's dismal Mondays. The Dow dropped 2,000 points. This time we were up 1,100 points. So what? The market, the market, the Dow Jones, such as it is, is reactive, doesn't know more than you do, doesn't know more than a slightly dumb politician or a slightly scared public health officer. A clash among oil producers is affecting the stock market as much as Corona, or maybe almost as much as Corona. And a huge drop in oil prices can actually have positive effects for the American consumer. Not necessarily. Some get hurt, some get helped. The markets try to guess at the overall picture of the economy, and sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong. But they're always said to have a story to tell. And this is the story that they are telling. It's pretty much like reading tea leaves or interpreting the clouds during a peyote trip. They are said to tell a story, mostly because humans love and need stories, as much as that they actually have a story to tell. That is also the story with the Bernie Sanders excitement story. And to some extent, it is the story with the coronavirus story. It seems like an outbreak or a contagion because we have ample stories, among them the film's outbreak and contagion. We know what happens when a guy starts coughing in an exotic pet market in China, cut to a plane full of tourists, returning from a ski vacation, cut to a crowded theater. We've seen those scenes. The spread seems so familiar because of fiction, because we've responded to it as a story. I mean, think about how you would negotiate if, if you were in a bank and a bank robber ever took a lady hostage. I know exactly what I do. I'd say, listen, you don't have to do this. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's put down the gun. Why do I know this? Because I've seen it so often in narratives. I don't know anything about this. I think I do. It's just been portrayed in stories. Oh, and I definitely know not to say, you don't have the guts to do it. Definitely don't say that. So we've seen the outbreak story, but we haven't seen just a regular yearly seasonal flu outbreak portrayed as a distinct story in a narrative. So that's not what our minds go to.
Listen, don't get me wrong. I think we definitely should be taking actions to stave off Corona. It is not the regular flu. It has a longer incubation period and seems to be more transmittable and seems to be deadlier, certainly seems to be deadlier. So I am not blasé. But it is true that we're so beholden to stories that the real world events that have stories attached to them seem really real. And the ones that are just events seem just like events. But that's the point. They actually were events. They might not be the most arresting or compelling or pressing. They were just the things that actually happened and therefore have proven themselves to be at least possible. I say this all during the corona outbreak so that you can keep it in the back of your mind. Because our minds will make sure the exciting stories are at the front. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Lobby is the GIST associate producer. She has some suggestions for David Plouffe's podcast, which might be better than Campaign HQ. How about Plouffe It All Night, Plouffe of Life, or That's the Truth with David Plouffe. Daniel Schrader produces the GIST. He'd go with Burden of Plouffe. The GIST. Join us again tomorrow for the rest of our interview with David Plouffe and his book on winning the 2020 election, or as we're calling it, Beating Trump, A Fool Plouffe Plan. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.